Beloved congregation, would you please read with me again 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. The story is told about a family that was traveling on an airplane, a jetliner, traveling at a high altitude. A mother with her six small children. As they were traveling, suddenly there was a system failure and air started to leave that passenger part of the airplane. A dangerous situation. And so from the ceiling fell the air masks designed to sustain those travelers in, the, in that dangerous situation. And the mother, in her panic, she began to put one of those air masks on her youngest child. And then she tried to grab another one of those air masks and put it on another one of her children. And then she faints. Why? Well, she didn't heed the instruction of the stewardess upon liftoff. That before you try to help others, before you try to put that air mask on others, you first have to put that air mask on yourself. I was thinking of this story as I reflected upon our text here. Today, in the Church of Jesus Christ, there I think we will have to recognize, generally speaking, is an absence of the kind of love that we are speaking of. A love that is sincere, a love that is fervent, a love that is pure, a love that embraces all fellow Christians. And if we would ask the question, why is there so much lovelessness? Why is there the absence of caring for those who are part of our spiritual family, and I think we ought to recognize the logic of this overall passage. In verses 13 to 21, the emphasis is really upon the vertical relationship with God, our holiness, our separation unto the Lord, a true and living relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now, Peter, he transitions to the horizontal, to how it is that we deal with our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And here we see that the foundation of true love among the brothers and sisters of the church, it's, it's based upon this, our true living relationship with God. And where our love grows cold and dim, where we find that this love is not present within us personally or corporately, then it owes unto this. There is a problem with the source and root of all love that is expressed in the life. There is a spiritual problem in our relationship with the Lord. If we see a total absence of love, there is indeed a total absence of relationship to God. 
If there is a weakening or, or a deficit of love, then to that extent we can say that there is a weakening and a deficit in the communion that we have with our blessed Savior God. And so before Peter transitions to these practical exhortations of love, which occupy in one way or another verses 22 to the end in verse 25 of of chapter 2, before that he emphasizes this point, the importance of partaking of God's grace as the foundation of true Christian love, seeing you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. It's my desire, Lord willing, to focus on more of the positive exhortation of love in the afternoon, but to begin this morning by focusing on the first portion of this verse, the purification of the soul, the soul of the Christian that is purified through God's grace. This is the foundation of all love, and so we dwell upon it. We focus upon it, and we uses the occasion of searching our own souls. Is it well with me this morning? Has my soul partaken of this great benefit of being cleansed, of being purified through the grace of God? To that end, let us consider three thoughts. The need for this purification. Second, the means of this purification. And third, the evidence. The soul purified, the need, the means, the evidence. Well, here we see that what is assumed in this verse is that there is a need for every sinner to be purified, to be cleaned from a kind of filthiness, seeing You have purified your souls. There is this absolute difference that is being drawn here between two spiritual conditions. There is the state of grace and there is the state of sin and condemnation. A sharp dividing line is put between them and it is put in this way. One is filthy, one is dirty, one is polluted, One is cleaned and one is purified. It is the same distinction and difference which the Apostle Paul speaks of in Titus chapter 1 and the 15th verse. Unto the pure, one category, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind is and conscience is undefiled. Children, if you would go to a garbage dump and you would see all of the different garbage being collected there, 
There are the rotten banana peels. There is the stinking, massive, filthy diapers from children. There is all this refuse, all of this filth collected in one space. Then you still wouldn't know even a small part of the kind of filth, the kind of dirtiness that is found on the inside of a sinner. Paul there, he said that to those who are defiled is nothing pure. And he speaks especially about what is on the inside, even their mind and conscience. What is the mind? It's what we think with. It's how we understand the world. This is polluted and defiled and filthy, rendered so by sin. What is the conscience? It is our estimation of ourselves. It is that silent watchman placed in our souls by God testifying to what and who we are. And for everyone who is in this state of defilement, the conscience testifies to one degree or another that the Lord regards them in this way as filthy, as polluted, as defiled. We know And we dread the the realization that those things we have done, according to the shining light of God's holiness, are utterly detestable. And the Lord has not left himself without a witness. To one degree or another, everyone knows this. And so it is that they pull themselves back from God. They retreat from God. Why? Because they know that they are filthy. And so knowing themselves to be filthy in their minds and conscience, everything in their life is defiled. Sin leads unto sin. Maybe you remember that memorable episode in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus was approached by some of those scribes and Pharisees. And they noticed that some of their traditions that they had come up with about dipping your hand in water as a special way of of cleansing yourself from this kind of sinful pollution, ceremonial pollution, that they were not observing this. Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Verse 9, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he heard the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man. But that which cometh out of the mouth, this this defileth a man. Jesus is explaining that the problem is on the inside. The problem is so deep-seated, so deeply rooted in the sinful soul 
that everything that comes from that mouth, everything that comes out of that inner man, it will likewise be defiled with sin. He spoke about this in the most clear terms in that chapter. Verse 17, Do not ye understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth, openeth, goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth cometh forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the mouth proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Jesus was so abundantly clear, not through these external rituals, not through these man-made traditions. Can you have any hope whatsoever of dealing with the root problem of the soul? You may understand this, for maybe you have tried. You've tried to clean up your act through your own efforts. You've tried to live according to a greater moral principle than characterized you in the past. You've tried to be a good person. But if you're being honest with yourself, you know that everything becomes corrupt on the very foundation of the effort. For your conscience testifies that it is not right with you and God. Your conscience testifies that your motivations are all wrong, that your heart does not sincerely desire the glory of God. And so everything is polluted, everything is foul, everything is corrupt. Such is the state of sin and condemnation. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. A qualitative difference here. A qualitative difference of the heart of the one who actually partakes of heavenly grace and glory compared to those Pharisees. Their righteousness externals, that which other people can see and brag over, this righteousness, it exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Why? It is of the heart. It is sincere. Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you see God? Would you enter into glory and heavenly paradise? Would you escape the condemnation which awaits all the defiled and unbelieving ones? This is what is needful, a heart that is pure and undefiled before God, the state of grace of the true believer. Let me just say that this is something that ought not to be neglected. Peter is so abundantly plain that the foundation of all love, all obedience in the Christian life is this, a changed heart and soul, seeing ye have purified your souls 
in obeying the truth through the Spirit. It ought never to be neglected. You ought not to think this is an automatic thing. You ought not to think that truly examining and and searching your soul for the evidence of His grace is a waste of time. Everything depends upon this. We see the need for this purification But we turn now to the means, the means by which God ordains to provide this marvelous state of grace. Seeing you've purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit. Now, a difference may be observed here, depending on your translation. If your translation is derived from a minority of manuscripts, they may leave out those words through the Spirit, but it's rightly retained in the translation received through our churches, the New King James and the King James translation, and it's found in a majority of manuscripts. But in either case, it's very clearly emphasized here. There is the work of God through the Holy Spirit that brings this about. God has his designs about bringing his chosen ones unto this state of purification and cleansing. Now, the same Bible that tells me there is a pure in heart, there is a purity of soul, it also tells me that in us no good thing dwells. How do we reconcile these things? How can anyone truly say that they are purified in soul. Well, I think the understanding here is not the absence of sin, something that awaits only in the future state of glory. Rather, the description here is not absolute, but relative. The presence of true sincerity, desire for the glory of God, is put here for purity of soul. It is a cleansing, not perfect cleansing, but true cleansing. There is a difference in the heart of a Christian. There is an absolute distinction to be drawn between the one who partakes of the Lord's saving grace and the one who still lies in the state of death. And it's clearly testified to here and in the other verses that we've considered. I want you to see how central this is to the whole plan of God's redemption. This is why the Lord Jesus came, that a people would be purified, both on the inside and out, cleansed through the work of the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 2 Verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself 
a peculiar people zealous of good works. This is a work of God. He has sent his son into the world in order that this people would be purified. This is a work of Jesus Christ. His purpose in dying was to bring forth this result. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing the Father's will and the Son's prize into realization by bringing a soul into a state of life and salvation. And it is called here the purification of the soul. Think that if we would emphasize it in this way as a work of the triune God, we must understand it's not something that you can snap your fingers and bring into realization. It's not something that is attained merely through human effort. Nothing of the kind. The Lord Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer where he was expressly praying for his elect people, his chosen ones. And there he says in John 17, verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. The same chapter in the 17th verse Verse, he prays unto his Father, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so it's on the basis of his prayer and mediation unto the Father that he be separated and set apart as the Savior, as the crucified one, that his people will be sanctified through the word of truth that he can speak unto his people as he does in John chapter 15, verse 3. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Let me be very, very clear about this. This is not a word that you speak unto yourself. It is a word that Christ speaks unto you through His great grace, through his great wisdom and authority, he speaks unto his chosen ones and pronounces this word that they are clean. And so it is, it's in this context we're to read the words that are are in our text here. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Now the word that's put for obeying the truth here, it's especially the obedience of one who is listening to the command of a superior. Sometimes if you remember what it is to work at your job, And you know that you have a manager who's in charge of explaining these are the things that you need to do. Then you understand what it is to be under authority. They say, do this. And and as a good employee, you listen and you obey. Children, this is the kind of obedience that you give to your parents when you are being good. 
When your parents tell you this is important, this is what you must listen to and obey, and you hear the one speaking with authority, and you submit to it. You submit to it. You treat this as the word which you must hear, you must do, because it comes from one who has authority over you. So it is that the purifying of our souls, it does involve us in every dimension of our life. With our minds, we receive the truth of Christ. With our wills, we submit to the truth of Christ. With the whole life, we are now consecrated unto this word of Christ. But it is in response to the work of Christ. It's not initiated or begun through human effort, but no, it is a gift of God's grace. But one that necessarily has following after it the soul that is brought into conformity with this great plan of salvation. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. What's held forth here is not the obedience of any particular word of truth, but towards that revelation of Jesus Christ in the gospel. As the suffering and dying servant for sinners, to the one who sees his impurity, his defilement, to the one who understands that she can do nothing to save herself from the condemnation and wrath of God, then the word of Christ that comes offering forgiveness and pardon, compelling and requiring the submission and obedience of the soul. This is how God is pleased to work salvation. The authoritative proclamation of the gospel. You ever imagine that maybe there would be a better way to bring about the understanding of salvation? Maybe instead of having preachers, we ought to have the best uh, movie director create a live-action program. We could have a great big screen, and we could communicate the gospel that way. I remember one time growing up in, in the church, they actually canceled the worship service, and they said, today we're going to have a puppet show to kind of make things more engaging for the children. Any number of different things we could invent that might seem more appealing to our own way we would order the receiving of the truth of God. But here is what is appointed. The spoken word of the gospel, the setting forth of Christ as the Son of God who is crucified for sinners. This is why the ordained preaching of the gospel is so precious, why we cannot live without it, why it must be according to the mind and will of God alone. Thus saith the Lord, because this is the means whereby God saves his chosen ones. I think that this I would want to emphasize in particular, that when we speak of our role in this, 
the actual active submission unto the gospel, the obedience unto the word that is preached, it is something very particular that is being referred to. It is the application of the promise unto our conscience in particular. We spoke of that, didn't we? Just as the defiled soul knows in their conscience that they are guilty, and so through their conscience everything that they do is defiled, so also the process in reverse. As we purify our souls, it is because we take the promise and through the grace of God, we apply the promise unto ourselves. Something in particular that you can find in, in numerous passages of the scripture, but let me especially look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. Now, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge, clean, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For the one who has heard the word of the gospel, that there is forgiveness for sinners if they will approach unto Jesus Christ and trust in him alone. For those who hear that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, what lies in our ability and in our duty is to apply that unto our own case and say that though our conscience condemns us, that we are great sinners, yet God deals with us not in that way, but as those who are forgiven. And being forgiven, the whole life is brought into conformity with the will of the Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Forgive me, that last quotation was from uh, Romans uh, 16, but the first part, um, having obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you, you see how that is the foundation of going from being a servant of sin to a servant of righteousness. The obedience of faith, whereby we not only receive Christ, but apply his promise of forgiveness unto our own case. That is what cleanses the conscience. So it is that we see here the need for it. And now we've seen the means. This is how the Lord is pleased to work. That is a work of God, but one in which 
we must be actively involved with. So on the basis of that, let us consider in the third place how it is that there is evidence for this. How it is that we can know that we are in a state of grace. And I think this is the best way we can improve this text for our own use today. Because it is no good whatsoever to simply beat up our conscience through more and more self-condemnation about our lack of love if we do not first understand that we are forgiven Christians. And if we are not forgiven Christians, then that indeed must be the greatest occupation, the only thing that matters. We must be right with the Lord. So our interest in using this text as by way of application is to understand whether we can discern evidence for this purifying work in our own soul this morning. Well, and the first thing I would ask you, sinner, if you would seek to understand if you are the receiver, the receiver of this state of grace, is this. What is your thought of your sin? What is your thought of sin? For the one who would rush into the presence of God, rush into prayer, and offer some hurried confession of sin, and some hasty application of the promises of the gospel unto your conscience, there is this great worry that you are speaking a word of blessing on yourself, but not receiving anything that actually comes from the Lord. That is the danger. If it is the case that you believe that you can continue to live in sin, have these small thoughts of sin, And when the pains of the conscience get a bit slight, you rush into the presence of God and you imagine that simply going unto the Lord Jesus in prayer will be enough, then you ought to at least examine yourself for this. As you go into Christ, as you name those sins, is there a right reckoning of how awful sin is? You can imagine someone, you go into their house and you look at their refrigerator and you see they simply never clean the place where their food is. They go there and they just simply allow the mold and the disease to build up and to build up. And you'd look at that and say, how could that possibly be? This is not right with you. So also the kind of revulsion that ought to come up from your own heart when you recognize the sin in yourself. That is the kind of sign that you are having true dealings with God. You mourn your sin. You grieve your sin. You see the heinousness of it. You see that indeed it is something that is displeasing to the Lord, something that is worthy of hell. And in great desperation, in great sorrow, in self-hatred for your sins, you flee unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That is inseparable from the true work of the Lord's grace. If indeed it is absence and there is no real sight of the heinousness of sin, then we have reason to worry that it is not of the Lord. Second thing I would say this, that is it truly the promise of the gospel that we are seeking to apply? 
Is it indeed Christ Jesus in his glorious mercies, in his perfect work as our atoning high priest, in his great invincible power, worth, and righteousness that we are applying unto? If it is indeed the case that we go unto the Lord Jesus and there is no right apprehension of who we speak unto, if there is no true going out unto him in the firm expectation that he delights to hear and answer the cries of his people, then indeed we have reason to wonder, are we really exercising our souls in the right application of the gospel? The Lord Jesus, he delights to receive sinners unto himself. His heart burns for the salvation of the weary and lost and broken and hell-deserving. And so it is, it's unto this Jesus that you go to. It's unto this one who loved his own so much that he sanctified himself as the living sacrifice in order that we might be sanctified through his word of truth. He who was out without any defilement took our defilement upon himself in order that we would receive the purification that is promised here. It is unto the Lord Jesus who is held forth in the gospel, the Lord Jesus who speaks through the word that we must go if we would rightly apply the gospel unto our conscience and so purify our souls. In this last test, I would, I would ask you, is it a daily thing with you? A daily application of the gospel into your conscience for the needed purity of heart and soul. It's not enough to go once. It's not a definite thing. Yes, I've purified my soul, and so there's no more need for this process or grace or duty. No, the process of this purification, which flows to the grace and blessing of the Lord, which entails our duty to apply the gospel into our souls, that is something that must be an ongoing process until the day we die. Daily we see that there is new defilement, new impurity, new ways in which we see that we fall short of the glory of God. And so daily we go unto the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, be merciful to me today for the daily sins that I observe in myself. Teach me what it is to truly be a purified saint, one who is set apart for your glory and praise. Instruct me in how it is I can truly exemplify that difference, that way and walk of love and obedience unto you. If there is not a daily turning from sin, then we have fears that it is not a true work of the Lord. Congregation, here are some tasks that we may put to ourselves. Is there a true hatred of sin? Is there a true going unto the Lord Jesus? And is it a daily thing for yourself? Well, I put to you that if you have reason to fear that it is not well with you today, that the Lord Jesus, he is yet in the business of purifying souls. He came in order that even the worst of sinners who had suppressed the truth time after time might yet submit unto his call of forgiveness and grace.
while it is yet this day of grace, harden not your heart, but obey the truth.